Welcome to Ahead of the Game, a podcast brought to you by the Digital Marketing Institute. This episode is a big Q&A, where we explore an area of marketing through a leading industry expert. And this is our last episode before we take a summer break, so no episodes during August, but we'll be back in your podcast feed soon enough with the next episode dropping on the 3rd of September. Well, I'm your host, Will Francis, and today I'll be talking to Mishka McInerney about behavioral science and digital marketing, how we can resonate more strongly with audiences and drive customer action, improving trust in our business and ultimately growing revenue. Mishka is the Chief Marketing Officer here at the Digital Marketing Institute. She has over 20 years experience in various different countries, industries and roles around the world, including hosting a cooking show on Japanese television co-founding an email marketing company in Australia and running her own marketing consultancy in Ireland. She later worked in key roles in major energy and banking firms before landing here at the DMI nine months ago. Hi, Mishka. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, great to be here. It's great to have you. I am very interested in talking about um, psychology and marketing. It's something that I think everyone is naturally very curious about. Um, and it's something that lots of people ask about in workshops. I think, you know, people have this idea that there are very certain colors that promote action or certain words and that these hacks are like the sort of secret recipes kept somewhere in a vault in the smartest marketing agencies. Is that true? Are, are, there, are there little kind of nudges and little rules that act as hacks or is it actually a bigger deeper thing than that do we have to think a bit harder yeah I think I think it's twofold to be honest with you um I think there's a lot of tactical stuff that you can do um in marketing um that will um looking at the why behind people's decisions understanding the why and then actually implementing tactics that will actually influence their decision and buy your product so there's there's that yeah definitely tactical stuff but then There is the more meaningful why, which is more about if you really understand the problem that your customers face um, and understanding the issues that that they face and solving that using behavioral science. I think that's really powerful in terms of changing brand perception uh, and brands. And I think that's where the behavioral science and marketing can be really, really powerful. That's interesting. And just to frame it, you know, uh, before we get into the more detail, is, is that a very long-term thing? Or it, are there ways we can work on that in the relative short term? If you try to do it at a very surface level, it will be just that, because there are some examples of brands that are using it at a very surface level, and it, it doesn't have depth. And I think that's the difference between brands that are doing purpose-led marketing well and brands that are not doing it well. So if you start to dabble in it, um, uh, it'll it'll look really superficial. It'll look fake and people see right through it. What would be an example of a very superficial dabble? Are we talking about, you know, just little tweaks in the way we write copy and and present our imagery and things? No, I I think like if you look across any of the the banks in the world, right, uh, all of them have uh, financial well-being. Uh, I want to, you know, help our customers prosper, right? To be honest with you, it's just a badge, right? So if you look at a company that it did, it, did it tactfully uh, 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 and it didn't have any lasting impact on the brand, it was just a gimmick, um, Westpac did that. And it worked well as a tactic, to be honest with you. Um, 
but they had this thing. So they they looked at a problem in, in uh, New Zealand and they said that $16 million was being wasted a day on impulse uh, purchases. And they said, OK, well, if you can impulse purchase and waste all that money, I think they were 23rd out of 29 in OECD in terms of their spending and their lack of saving. So the Westpac had that insight. Well, you know, we want to improve fin- people's financial well-being, so we'll help them save more. So, um, so they turned the impulse uh, spending on its head and became impulse saving, and they developed this big red button that every time you take your phone out of your pocket, you could do impulse save, or you know. So it was cool. It was a big red button. There's a lot of advertising around it, like bush shelter advertising with the big red button. So it was really, really good. It's quite gimmicky, but quite an effective um, tactic and an effective little kind of mechanism to put into people's lives. Yeah, it, and and it and it was really effective in terms of uh, increasing savings. Like, and I suppose it did actually have an element of of behavioural science to it because if you say to someone, you know, I want you to save a hundred and fifty dollars per month, people are going to go, no, I can't do that. But if you tell them that to to save five dollars a day then that's a different, that's easier. And they can chunk it down. They can do the the mental arithmetic to see what that would mean. So like a a coffee and a chocolate bar, for example. Um, So that's what they were playing on. And they hit that big red button and you can save your money. You can put whatever denomination you want. I suppose it was tactical. It was effective at the time, but it wasn't lasting because there wasn't a whole architecture behind it that actually uh, when to improve people's financial well-being at a deeper level. So that, that's what I mean by the tactical stuff. It had um, it had improvements. They were temporary, um, and it helped people. But it it was more gimmicky than 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 enduring in terms of brand. Yes, true. And I think just from a psychology point of view as well, that reminds me of some of the stuff that comes up in one of the best-selling books of the last few years, something called Atomic Habits, a book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. And yeah, he talks about that, that like he talks about successful salespeople having like a, a jar, a big empty jar on their desk, and they just put maybe a, a, an object like a marble or a stone in the jar for every sales call they make and just seeing the jar fill up and actually performing a physical action and the, 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 the satisfaction of that. And it's like this kind of psychological hack to surmounting what sounds really daunting, like you've got to make 200 sales calls, but to boil it down to everyone, you know, a bit like the kind of $5 a day thing. Um, it's those kind of ways that we can actually promote behaviors that otherwise feel like they're impossible to promote through through marketing, right? And um, appealing to people's, um, yeah, behavioral tendencies, I suppose. Yeah, I think what's interesting in that book is that they don't try and get you to... Uh, or he doesn't try and get you to, to to create a new habit cold turkey. What he does is try and attach it to a, a habit that you already have, like brushing your teeth. So after I brush my teeth, I will do this, you know, and that becomes, it, it makes it more uh, lasting. So, so for example, you go to a physio and they tell you, you need to do these exercises, right? But then uh, physios were using it to actually say, okay, after your dinner, sit down and do this so it was something that you already did as part of your day um and they and that was the mental trigger for you to go and do those exercises every day so they they went through your day and, and picked a mental trigger that you could add those behaviors on to 
And yeah, you're right. Um, uh, sort of tethering it to things that you already do. It's interesting, and I think that's good. To, that that sort of hopefully illustrates to listeners the kind of stuff we're talking about. It's working with the the firmware already running in our brains. And, you know, uh, I suppose to take that analogy further, creating software that's compatible with it rather than uh, a lot of messaging out there, which just isn't. It's telling people to do stuff that, that's not right for them. They'll never do. Uh, I mean, of course, that's been a huge challenge in terms of uh, the COVID-19 pandemic and trying to get people to, you know, use the apps and get vaccinated and all kinds of things. They actually ran a bit of a, uh, an experiment in the US and when they personalised um, your the vaccine, so instead of getting saying, you're, you know, come get your vaccine, right, it was, Margaret, we have a vaccine here for you. Um, it actually uh, increased the uptake, which I thought was interesting. Um, so it was personalising. So again, kind of creating that sense of attachment. So. Yeah, personalising and humanising things. I mean, I, I don't mean to just keep pulling out random examples, but it's like the whole thing about how when you drive past uh, construction works on the motorway now, they have cardboard, life-size cardboard cutouts of construction workers saying, you know, keep me safe. Uh, I even saw one. It was um, a thing with some a life-size cutout of some kids and like, my daddy works here. Keep him safe. I saw that. You know, and it's actually looking into the eyes of a cardboard cutout, <laughs> even though it's just a cardboard cutout. It's like, oh, this is, you know, if th- this, I'm, I feel like I'm being watched or I'm, I'm, I'm being, it's more account, I'm more accountable for my actions here. And similar to that vaccination text, like when it's addressed to you, it's like, oh, this isn't just some anonymous cold bot some dumb bot like they know i am i feel more accountable and more like you know it appeals to the part of your brain that wants to do the right thing for other people yeah they actually they did that in uh, japan and rather than so they did an experiment between uh, speed cameras um and um plastic dummies of police uh, on cut. And so they did um, speed cameras, which didn't have a material impact in speed reduction. But when they did these, they um, dropped these various different plastic dummies that looked like policemen all around um, various different areas where there was um, big speed um, infringements. And that had a, a better impact because people had this kind of sense of duty um, that, you know, uh, and also that kind of guilt, I suppose, that they did. A, also, another study is is when you give uh, customer service agents uh, or even bots a name, people were nicer to them. Um, but what I think is, and I, and I think Amazon do customer experience really, really well, but they call their bots or even their, their, their chat agents associates, mm. which is really dehumanizing. Like, we'll put you through to an associate. Like, it's like, really like so are they going to be back bots in the future and they can just continue to use that language you know i just uh, i think it dehumanizes it yeah absolutely and, and i think look that's been the big challenge and anyone listening that works for a company knows that a big challenge in the last 10 to 15 years has been humanizing brands and i think the pressure was really put on us when social media became a mainstream channel because we suddenly had to create this whole other brand voice, this whole other approach to customer service, uh, this whole other way of talking about our products and services it, because we were doing so on platforms that were originally designed for us to just keep in touch with our friends and brands couldn't just steam in with their corporate style and tone. Um, 
and that that but that keeps moving in that direction because now we've got lots of even more casual types of social media like TikTok and stories and um open forums like Clubhouse and things like that and then bots and sort of semi-human semi-personalized co- uh, conversations and all kinds of things so i mean you know where where do we start in surmounting that challenge if someone's listening and think how do i humanize my brand are there some go-to ways to do that i think i think you have to be authentic um and i don't think you can have borrowed equity mm, interesting. borrowed I, equity I talk to me about that yeah <laughs> borrowed equity is when you try and get the equity of some thing something or someone already in existence and try and borrow the equity of it and i think the biggest example of that is probably pride yeah um, you're borrowing the equity of pride and you're sticking the pride logo on your corporate logo and you're borrowing that equity that people see right through that and they don't like that corporate badging of pride. And I don't, uh, I think one of the biggest things in, in brands is to be authentic. Um, I think the other thing is try try and find a problem that your customers face that is uh, close to their heart, I suppose, and that they that they, um, they care about, uh, and try and solve it with them. Mm. That is authentic. That you know, I, I think Patagonia do that really well. Um, they care about the environment. Everything that they do um, is about the environment. Uh, in their clothing is sustainable. Um, it's not you know the landfill fashion that some you know that that, that I suppose is promoted today. Um, so everything that they do is about the environment uh, and you can feel a sense of purpose in that. Um, and I think that's that's a differentiating factor. It's the it's discovering the why, um, solving something that people care about and working on it together. And so that people feel that they're contributing to that problem, be it for themselves or actually for for um, or for society, that they, they are helping. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. That's a really good point. Yeah, I I think that people like to get behind brands that they believe are a positive force in the world, right? So whether it's uh, environmentally sustainable brands, whether it's brands like Tom's, you know, the shoe brand who they give a pair of shoes to the developing world for every pair of shoes you buy. Um, but also I think um, I, I, I probably bring them up a lot in the, in the podcast, but there's a, an American beauty brand called Glossier. Um, I mean, their tagline is skin first, makeup second. And they are all about real women, real people making the best of their actual self with just quality, not trend driven, just down to earth quality makeup. Right. And there's definitely so even a brand like that, they're not talking about sustainability, environment or social good or anything like that. But they've they've got a clear mission, and by spending money with them, you feel like you're sponsoring something better than was there before. I think if you unpick that, what, what and you you were looking at the why for for that brand, um, you know, and you ask people, well, what what do you struggle with with buying makeup? And you say, like, well, when I put it on, uh, my skin my skin just breaks out. Um, and I know that if I'm wearing, if I don't give myself a, a break from makeup, then I'll get like spots or uh, my skin won't be good. But when I do give my skin a break from makeup, it actually is better. And I think that's a problem that actually they may have solved in their branding. 
um, that it's about the skin um, and then then it's about the makeup. So it's kind of reversing it, you know, because some of the other brands, they, you know, and it's good for your skin, skin, but actually it's a bolt on. And you don't believe it when they come out and come out with skincare then because um, they started first with makeup and they didn't make you believe that it was good for your skin. So I just, yeah, I think that's really interesting. Oh, that's what they did. They're famous for it. They 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 sourced the idea for, ideas for most of their products from customer groups. They invite customers in in a very very open way. Uh, they share product development quite openly. But I, I think a lot of those things are markers of a truly modern brand. And and you know we do live in a more well, I was going to say in a more transparent world, it's it's not that. We live in a world that demands more transparency of us as companies. We live in a world where consumers are inquisitive. They're curious about, okay, so what, what am I sponsoring here when I spend money with that company? And that's why, you know, when I talk about purpose in my workshops, some people do say things like, oh, come on, I, I, I don't, don't say I've just got to kind of do all the greenwashing stuff just to kind of, you know, go along with it all. Well, no, of course, it's not to do with that. It's, it's, it's to do with the fact that people genuinely care what sort of company you are when they hand over money now. You know, so it's it's on you to dis- decide that, you know, not to just jump on trends like pride and environment or whatever it is. It's to go, no, who are we and what do we really care about? And uh, often for founders, it's about what, what, why did you set this company up? Like what would be the ideal place this company occupies in the world and its role in, in, in the world and in the future of the world? You've got to ask those big questions, you know. Yeah, I am. Um, yeah, I, like on that, I, I love, um, I don't know if you're familiar with Naked Wines. No. No, okay. So they find um, independent vineyards. Um, so you will never get any of these wines in any kind of supermarket or anything. So independent vineyards, um, and they will buy their wine directly from them. But the, there's a, a forum, then you can ask them questions about the soil, about how they their growing process, and they'll keep you up to date. And they'll They'll take pictures of it and you feel part of the, the process. But I've actually seen some of people interacting on uh, on the forums going, I actually don't think the yield is going to be good this year. And uh, I, I don't think it's going to be as good as last year. And, and and people are like, well, I've already ordered mine and, and I'm going to stick by it because, you know, because they feel part of it. And I think that's that's amazing. And it's also mean that, you know, the supermarkets aren't coming in and whacking this big levy on it. And taking most of the profit, it go, it's going straight to the to the to the um, the winemaker. Um, and and there was another, there was a lady who actually was working in a vineyard in, in South Africa, um, and um, she decided to set up by herself, and the 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 crowdfunded her to set up by herself, and she became the first um, female winemaker in uh, South Africa. Um, to get accreditation and this was totally crowdfunded by this community um and i just thought it was really it was brilliant because you feel involved in it and it's a real um it feels like there's a real purpose behind what they do uh, in promoting small winemakers and making helping you feel part of that process yeah it's it's interesting isn't it as you as you're saying that it, a lot of this stuff you know it speaks to the way that people feel about companies and that is traditionally what we've talked about when we talk about brand, you know, the sentiment that people have towards companies. But I suppose 
um, because of modern marketing techniques and we're just becoming more advanced in general in the way that we think about things, I suppose that's why that has become more reliant on behavioral science working with our natural tendencies as humans, like like the example you've talked about, where people love to kind of get together around something, congregate around something that they have in common. And then, yeah, love to see them, you know, elevate someone into that position and do it together. And feel part of their success. It's amazing. Feel part of it. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the whole thing about brand purpose, isn't it? You know, define your mission and then put the call out. Who wants to be on this mission with us? That's often how I describe it to people. You know, as Simon Sinek says, people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. And once you state your mission, either explicitly or not, just, you know, however you communicate it, that's like a beacon. And the people with whom that resonates will just they'll just come to you. And they're the exact people you want, because especially if you're a new company, they will be your early adopters. They will be the people that will go on that mission and then tell 10 of their friends. Evangelize, yeah. Totally evangelize what you do, yeah. Yeah, I, I think um, I, another kind of example of obviously a brand where people evangelize is obviously Tesla. But I think they've done some really interesting, uh, I suppose, gimmicky, um, tactful kind of behavioral psychology in their advertising campaign. So obviously, you know, electric vehicle um, uh, and, you know, everyone who owns one loves it and they evangelize it. And it's almost like a, you know, a mini cult, I suppose, that, you know, of people that that, that have one. Um, but they did a really good piece because obviously it's it's so quiet, the engine. And, you know, people don't get range anxiety because you can travel far and the ads are good. Um, but what was a really good one, it was, it was part of kind of in, in behavioral psychology, it's called framing. And that's actually building a, an emotive connection in the moment with your audience. Um, and they uh, they said, click here to hear uh, the Tesla startup. And you click and you click on the button and you can you can't hear anything at all. It's just like silent. And I thought that was really clever because you're engaging a sense. People are listening and you, you've got this immersive experience. It's a it's almost like a two way conversation. And if you think about it, obviously, you know, Tesla are really brand, well known. But if you think about it, you know, so if you get someone to do an action on behalf of your brand, that's when you will get brand recall. Um, you know, so, the, you know, the passive viewing. Uh, what I would think like in even in the future of video and uh, passive viewing um, they watch a video and they walk away they won't necessarily recall your brand but if they're doing something on behalf of the brand and it's an immersive experience that's what will deliver cut through yes that's true isn't it I, I was um, I was delivering a copywriting workshop yesterday and uh, I used this example of a, an ad for, uh, from Pepsodent a US toothpaste brand one of the big toothpaste brands there and they ran this very famous print ad in the 1920s uh, at a time when only 6% of Americans actually brushed their teeth every day, right? Uh, but the ad was basically something, I can't exactly remember the headline, but it was basically about, you know, that film on your teeth is rotting your teeth. And the first thing you do when you read the headline without noticing is you run your tongue over your teeth. You go, mm. I mean, of course, at that time, everybody would run a tongue over their teeth and be like half a meal there. I don't know what was there, you know, if only 6% of people were brushing them. Um, but within a decade, you know, Pepsodent owned that market and apparently two thirds of Americans brushed their teeth. You know, they gave rise to the whole like white American smile thing. And it started with these clever ads that 
they got you to lean in and they it was became sensory. So rather than saying, hey, you need to brush your teeth or this is the best toothpaste, they, they, it was this clever way of making people go, hmm, I wonder, you know, and running their tongue over their teeth. And that makes it a, you really internalize it. It makes it real and it, it just makes it sensory. I think there's, um, so, you know, it doesn't have to be some fancy digital <laughs> campaign to do that. There was um, an Australian pillow company um, uh, and uh, they changed the market as well. So it, they essentially, they, they looked at um, the germs that you get in your pillow over build up over time, right? Um, and they started putting expiry dates on their pillows. And yeah, and so the two-year expiry date on the pillows, and that's uh, when you knew that you needed to, to kind of throw it out. So they actually show, proved that, um, it was it was a can line winner actually, but they actually proved that they changed market trends because they talked about uh, ex- your pillow expiring, and that's totally something that you wouldn't even think about on a day to day basis. Well, both of those examples are also examples of uh, raising a problem to an audience that aren't even aware there is a problem. You know, because a lot of marketing is, you know, you want a better car, here's the better car, or you're looking for electric cars, here's a Tesla. When Tesla first came out, and, and, and lots of other brands have this, where people don't even understand there is a problem, and you need to sort of highlight that, and I suppose that's a whole skill in itself from a marketing point of view. Hello, a quick reminder from me that if you're enjoying our podcast series, why not become a member of the DMI so that you can enjoy loads more content from webinars and case studies to toolkits and more real-life insights from the world of digital marketing. Head to digitalmarketinginstitute.com forward slash ahead of the game to sign up for free. Now back to the podcast. So do you have any real standout examples of brands that have used behavioral science and applied that to improve results? Yeah, a standout example for me would be Commonwealth Bank in Australia. So um, they wanted to improve uh, the, so they have a third of Australian customers or the Australian population as customers. So that's a sizable, uh, they could impact the entire Australian economy by by impacting the financial well-being of a third of its population, right? So they set it upon themselves to increase the financial well-being of their customers. As I mentioned earlier, um, it's probably on everyone, every bank's manifest, right? But no one was doing it properly. So they engaged with a guy called Mo Kali, uh, and he was a behavioral psychologist. Um, and they said, okay, can you help us use behavioral psychology to make a real impact in people's lives? Uh, so I think he joined the digital team to begin with uh, because accessing technology was the best way for him to kind of get to the market quickly. So they developed a series of, of financial tools, um, some digital tools. So they savings nudges. So they would do a forecast and say, OK, it looks like um, looking at your spending patterns now that it looks like you'll have 200 euro or 200 dollars at the end of this month. Uh, do you want to put it into a savings account? Uh, and they go, okay, uh, no. Well, like, how much would you like to put in? Oh, I'd like to put 50 in. Okay, so then it goes into a savings account. So it's prompting you at mo- moments that make sense to try and save more and actually nudging you to do small increments rather than actually big sum amounts. 
Um, they also had kind of no spend day challenges or spend less challenges. So um, this was all integrated into their app. Um, they had a bill sense uh, that told you when bills were coming up and helped you put the money aside for that bill so it wouldn't bounce in your account. Uh, so really, really practical tools. Um, they also did an experiment of the language around credit cards. And I think this is really interesting because everything was like, you know, uh, you can get travel save travel points if you if you spend on this credit card. You can and it have the APR and in language that no one understood necessarily. So what they did was they put it into language uh, that a, an eight year old could understand. But also what they did was they said reasons why you shouldn't buy that card, <laughs> why you shouldn't purchase that card, which was trying to, you know, convince product managers, <laughs> credit card product managers that they, they should tell the audience why they or their customers why they shouldn't buy it. That That's a big thing. So they went on board. They said, look, we're either in or we're out. Uh, they went on board with it uh, and they were saying, OK, well, look, if you travel a lot, get this card because you'll get lots of travel points and you know they just broke it down in really really easy to understand terms um the financial impact of that was the increased spend uh the attrition rate um reduced by 20 percent um and actually reduced late payments as well which is obviously really beneficial to the customer as well um they also and i think this is probably the 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 best example that i could find um, they had this benefits finder tool, right? Which um, you you access it and you say, okay, scan my accounts and tell me what bene government benefits I'm entitled to. So uh, it uh, it gave eighty five million back to the customers on uh, government benefits. So things like uh, tax rebates, pension refunds, energy rebates. Um, 700,000, uh, uh, so 2.2 million people accessed it, 700,000 people claimed it, and 370,000 during the COVID pandemic. So it made a real impact in their lives um, and it really improved their financial well-being. So, but they had measured their financial well-being of their base. They had indexed them according to coping. You know, they could barely cope according in, in, in everyday finances to, to, you know, right the way up to thriving. Um, so they were able to measure at a grassroots level, depending on people's spending habits, the impact they had in the messaging that they put out, in the tools that they used on people's financial well-being. And they improved the financial well-being of their customers. And what was also really interesting was then when the Australian government were looking at what should we give uh, in terms of you know furloughs or, or COVID payments, they came to the Commonwealth Bank and they stress tested what if scenarios to 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 test what impact they would have on the financial well being of those customers. So then, when the Australian government were giving um, out the furlough payments, they knew exactly what would make a difference or uh, in terms of um, maintaining the financial well being uh, of the Australian citizens. Um, what's so that that's phenomenal that's really purpose-led brand work and it's evidence-based and it's evidence-based in terms of they, they they improve the financial well-being but it's also evidence-based in terms of they they, they increase revenue tenfold um tenfold. and they wow. tenfold uh for, for the customers that were involved in this right um uh they also 
uh, so what they saw was that where people had a number of different financial products scattered across a number of different banks, they brought in their financial products into one ecosystem within Commonwealth Bank because they felt that they were looking after them as a person rather than actually just their credit card. So so, so that was, um, but it also increased our NPS by seven points in one year, which is... Which means what in, in plain English, just for listeners? So it's basically um, a promotion, it's a universal promoter score that that gauges um, customer satisfaction. So they ask one simple question, would you recommend Commonwealth Bank or whatever to a friend? Um, everything that scored seven and above, it gets added on. Anything that scores, I think it's four and below gets subtracted away and then it's the net of those two figures so um so they are the num they, they're the number one banking brand uh, their brand score uh, uh, their brand score um brand strength index score is 85.6 out of 100 they're the third uh biggest brand um in australia behind two supermarkets during covid that had no impact and the banking sector was almost decimated through covid so um they're the way they helped their customers uh, had brand loyalty but it also helped them be able to weather a storm because they had money in for a rainy day and they had increased their savings you know so i think that's how you do it right <laughs> that's that, that's where people can feel the impact of your brand purpose uh, on their everyday lives and financial well-being had the has the biggest impact on stress and, and depression yeah that's true isn't it i suppose uh, you know the the takeaways from that from you know from a layman's point of view from my point of view i suppose not knowing it intimately but the obvious takeaways from that are they understood what mattered to their customers, so they 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 listened to their customers. They internalized that, and they took seriously the mission of addressing those pain points, rather than how can we quickly look like we're addressing them to get a quick marketing win. Um, they actually went, how can we fundamentally uh, pivot or or just operate as a business to meet those pain points in a you know end-to-end way that is completely authentic and it is completely how we actually do business not just a, a quick campaign um but also i think because you know when you talk about this stuff to people purpose people sometimes think well that's a nice to have and i mean yeah it'd be like lovely to have a bit of a kind of halo around the brand but it sh- it proves doesn't it that if you go uh that deep on on implementing and um, addressing your customers' pain points, people will respect you for that. And that respect does turn into hard cash. So however, you know, ruthlessly commercially minded you are, um, it works. You know, if you had a small to medium-sized business and you saw that example, like what of that could you take and put into a small to medium-sized business? Like, can anyone do this stuff? however big their business is? I think they can. Um, I think you've got to um, stay really close to your customers uh, to do this, right? I think you've got to have um, almost like a, a testing group with your customers, a WhatsApp group with with customers, right? Where you can get quick responses to understand, are you on the right track? Are you, are you, uh, are you doing the right thing? But first of all, trying to understand what their biggest pain point is that you can help solve or what the thing that they care about that you can help solve. And I think that's the biggest thing. Once you get that and once you've established what that is, then tr- doing a 360 view of everything that you do and actually 
doing it from the grassroots up so that and also hiring people that believe that. Do you know, hire people that that actually believe that they want to solve that problem or that they care about it, you know, because then they believe in it. And when you're when your staff believe in it, when you your customers will believe in it because um, it's authentic. It comes from the inside out. Um, uh, and I think that's that's the key to this. Um, but you can't just do it in one element. You've got to do it in everything that you do. Um, and then it becomes authentic um, and you've got to believe in it. Um, if you don't believe in it, some I suppose some brands when they're changing tack, they go, "Here's our new brand proposition. How can we how can we make everyone else internally believe it?" You know, they do it from the outside in. It has to be done from the inside out. Oh, we've all worked for those brands or businesses or something, you know, where the the kind of you know, the new brand and the new brand mission or company charter, and I mean, no, and no one's really on board with it. Everybody's just turning up to get the paycheck and. Um, it's yeah it's it's not the right way around and you're right it's a really good point you know if you're going to bring people aboard the ship uh they need to be okay with how we sh- how we're sailing the ship and where we're going um it, it, you've got a bait you've got a hire to some extent on values um for sure that is a very important thing right so to take it even further down to the tactical level there are some really specific ways we can implement behavioral science in our work Talk me through those that and and how they're going to impact how we present our product pages or social media content, emails, that kind of thing. So there's there's a few. Um, there's eight I've got here. Um, so social proofing, first of all, um, and this means um, this is helping people validate that they're in good company or actually turning it on its head. So I give an example, um, the US government wanted to uh, reduce tax fraud and actually um, uh, help people or make people um, hand in their taxes on time. So they, they use behavioral psychology. Um, so what they did was they said 96% uh, of people on your street, and they named the street, have handed in their tax returns, right? So it makes you look like the odd one out. That's reversing social proofing, but making you feel, you know, that you're the odd one out. Um, uh, they also, um, they had at the end of, you know, you go through all your tax form and then you sign it at the end and that it's true to the best of your knowledge. They actually moved that to the top, the signature to the top. And they said, everything I'm about to complete will be true to the best of my knowledge. Uh, and, and, you know, the legally binding, all of that kind of stuff. And it reduced the tax fraud, which was, was really interesting. Um, the other thing is about choice architecture. Um, and that's actually not giving people too much choice. So people's brains, as I mentioned earlier, are digitally distracted. Um, it's too much information overload. You need to break it down into really, really simple terms and only give them a limited number of choices. Three is the optimum. And so on a website, for example, um, you you present three of the different pod- products above the fold uh, on desktop, for example. Uh, you might have other products that you have b- below the fold or, or further down, but actually the three headline ones are up the top. Um, and you've kept it really simple for them to understand what they're about, what the features and benefits of um, those products are. Um, the other the other thing would be um, to, to look at anchoring. So anchoring is essentially when you put the most expensive uh, item first. So for example, if you're selling cameras uh, at $200, uh, $500 and $800, the first thing that the first 
product that people see, you put the $800, then you put the $500 and you put the $300. And if you put the $800 one first, it'll make the, the $500 one seem like better value. Yes, it sets the benchmark, doesn't it? And then everything else feel, is, is, is anchored into that. It's in the context of that initial price. So everything else feels relatively cheap. Yeah, That's it. Um, the other thing is scarcity. So um, so this is actually, you know, airlines do this really well. Uh, only three left at this price. Uh, so it's scarce. Um, and that's um, so uh, it creates urgency. Um, so scarcity, loss aversion. Um, so behavioral psychology says that people would rather not lose $10 than gain $10, uh, than win $10. So uh, they don't want to lose it. Um, so uh, Amazon use this well. They, 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 they do lightning sales, 24-hour um, sales. So um, so creating that sense of urgency again for, for, for um, uh, e-commerce selling Um it's only available for one day um, or 24 hours and you can do a, a ticker tape countdown uh, available as well. It's scarcity and, and, and that I suppose that with kind of scarcity as well will increase the conversion rate. Yeah, I think booking.com fused those last three points really well. When you go and look at a hotel room and it'll say something like John S in Manchester has just booked this. So A, it's social proof. Oh, people are booking it. B, it's like, you know, oh, scarcity. These are going fast. And C, loss aversion, because it's I'm going to be paying loads more for this room if I don't book it now. Um, it's annoying, but it, it kind of works. You kind of feel like you're being a bit sold in that instance, I think. Yeah, yeah it works. It works. Um, there's partial ownership. Um, so developing an emotive connection with your audience um, by giving them a free trial, immersing them in your product. So obviously Netflix, you know, do, do that really well. They do that. Yeah. So it's to bring them deeper into the product. Yes. Um, and I even see some software companies now doing paid trials. So like uh, there's a, there's a popular SEO tool called Ahrefs, one of the biggest ones in the world. And they do something like a week trial for, I don't know, $5 or something. I mean, this is a $100 a month, um, you know, product. But again, it's that once you've paid them some money and you've had a go with it, you've kind of, you're already a customer. And as the old saying goes, it's 10 times easier and cheaper to sell to your existing customers than new ones. So you've just, you've crossed the big line already, haven't you? You've entered the world of the brand and it's much easier to keep going with them than actually then take on the the brain power of assessing a, a competitor so what's that what did you call that uh, partial ownership yeah it's when you feel people feel like they've delved into something and yeah. now they feel part of it yeah yeah um and they and, and it's harder for them to reverse out of it interesting you know interesting so, so that kind of emotional kind of engagement um the other is framing. I talked about that earlier, uh, that emotive selling, the Tesla example, when you're creating that emotive hook in the moment, um, when you press, when they when press this button to hear what a, a Tesla sounds like starting up, um, that, that kind of emotive hook, so you're framing it uh, emotionally. I think what you're going for there in, in most of them is conversion rate optimization. Um, uh, 
Uh, and they're simple to, you know, a simple version of social proofing, for example, is just uh, testimonials. It's people like you. It's people want to see themselves uh, in uh, in the brand or in the people in the customers of the brand, um, and you're playing back them to themselves, and 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 that's really, um, you know, trust marks as well uh, to to boost conversion rate optimization. That's social proofing. Yeah, absolutely, and. Um... That you know, for for a company that sells online, that's so important every step of the way. Like even at basket and checkout, where you think the job's done, actually you can lose a huge amount of people. And you know, I even I've even seen people put testimonials around those places as well, just to sort of reassure you that you're still making the right decision, even though you've gone through most of the process. You know, um, because we do live obviously in this fractured e-commerce world now, and trust is the only thing. We've got, you know, in terms of working out if I'm spending money in the right place, um, a lot of the time. So yeah, or even then, the the in the secure checkout, um, it, making those icons bigger, building that trust, that can have an impact on on conversion rate optimization. So yeah, I think um, building that trust, yeah, at every step of the way. Uh, Mishka, thanks so much. That was incredibly insightful. That, f- that flew by. I found that really interesting talking to you about that stuff. Um, and uh, we could uh, definitely talk for a lot longer, but um, tell uh, tell our listeners where they can find you online. So you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, so Mishka McInerney um, uh, on LinkedIn. Um, hopefully the spelling will be in the show notes because <laughs> it's not an easy name to spell. Um, but yeah, you can find me on LinkedIn, um, on Twitter as well. Um, so either or. Brilliant. Well, that's great. Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, Mishka, and I'll talk to you soon. Great. Thanks a million, Will. Take care. Thanks a million. Bye. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And for more information about transforming your marketing career through certified online training, head to digitalmarketinginstitute.com. Thanks for listening.